You're listening to the Quince podcast. Hello, my name is Vaishali Sood and I'm the health editor with the Quint. I'm talking to you today about a book called Life Interrupted Understanding India's Suicide Crisis. And this book has been co-authored by uh, my friend Amrita Tripathi, who's a former journalist, founder of the Health Collective. It's a, it is a website dedicated to creating awareness about mental health in India. And it is also co-authored by Dr. Somitra Patare. He's the director for Center uh, for Medical Health Law and Policy at the Indian Law Society in Pune. and also by Dr Abhijit Natkarni he is a psychiatrist and associate professor of global mental health at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in the UK so welcome all and thank you so much for speaking with me thanks vaishali thanks for having us on this thank you so amrita i want to start off directly with you i mean i've known you for decades now and uh, you always been a very passionate advocate for mental health uh, from the days when you were young journalist at a broadcast network and i remember you were uh, the first to sort of create your own um, you know with your own guidelines for mental health reporting and sharing it with the editors something that you mentioned in the book and i i was there when you did it and, uh, and so it's incredible to watch the amount amount of work and the amount of uh, books you've written on this topic and how you've taken um, you know your interest to this level so it's incredible amita i wanted to talk to you about how you uh, put this specific book together on uh, life interrupted and uh, you know why it was important for you to write uh, co-author this book thanks thanks so much vaishali so the first thing uh, first things first i have learned so much by working with dr natkarni and dr patare including uh, they didn't teach me how to do this this i learned from all the books i've written <laughs> so everyone can see it in the frame um, but including that it's not just a mental health issue um, but you know vaishali when you talk about suicide and suicide reporting you're absolutely right back in the day when we were at a you know national news channel and we were trying to cover um, issues like suicide it was often when um, it was a celebrity case and we would see firsthand the kind of uh, issues that came with that right i mean things that the uh, experts would continue to tell us that you know media sensationalizes um, we don't actually give uh, acts, uh, we don't actually report on let's say helplines right which is now just a globally mandated best practice um, including when the quint does it you always do put um, you know the, the helplines that are available um, so for me i think there's two or three things here one is um, seeing it as a journalist firsthand that there was not that much awareness even in newsrooms even when we tried to kind of bang the drums for change um, and seeing what kind of uh, fallout and consequences that can have because i think the more interviews um, i went on to do um, talking to survivors uh, families of people who had you know died by suicide um, realizing what kind of impact that had looking at the studies um and finally i think um i i mentioned for the first time ever actually in this book um it, you know there was a very personal uh, connection to suicide my first job i was an intern and uh, my first boss actually died by suicide and that was right as i was uh, finishing high school and entering college and uh, none of us had the vocabulary or skills to deal we didn't know what happened you know and i, I think that always stayed with me um but this book and i'd love to see how dr patari and dr natkani answer this question because it has transformed we thought of we thought we would do it a certain way and i certainly saw that um it 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 changed in it the way we wrote it changed the way we approached it changed the way we uh, you know foregrounded some interviews changed um so it's really been a work in progress um and it is an intense subject but as we we've, we've been pointing out it's not a it's not a depressing book you know uh, it is a book that's meant to equip people with the knowledge they need um and hopefully that it, it does justice to that 
Right, and this is something that you've just said, and it's there throughout as a sort of theme in the book that you cannot uh, look at suicides in uh, with with the only uh, singular focus of mental illness. It's a systemic problem. It's a socio-economic problem, and that theme sort of sort of uh, is prevalent through the book. Uh, Dr. Pathare, you demonstrate that through your chapter on women and suicides. And, uh, you know, while in terms of absolute numbers, more men may be dying than women due to suicide, when it comes to uh, women from the age group of 15 to 39, it's the number one cause of suicide. And so I just wanted to get that uh, understanding from you. Why is it that in India, more women are dying of suicide uh, compared to Western countries? What are the various factors that sort of lead to this uh, data? Well, I mean, if you ask me to uh, say with uh, certainty, then I don't think I could or anyone could because that <clears throat> it also illustrates one of the problems with the whole suicide uh, information in our country. We just don't have enough research. We don't collect the data. We don't uh, have enough research on it. So we don't really know what are the reasons. But I could speculate based on what we know about mental health issues in our country. So domestic violence is probably one of the big predictors of uh, of suicide. It's especially, and that's true everywhere across the world. And maybe we just have a much higher rate of domestic violence. You combine that with uh, the patriarchal nature of Indian societies. Uh, and also the fact that women, uh, you know, early marriages and women have less less uh, economic opportunities. Now that all adds up to a really uh, volatile mix in many sorts of ways. Uh, and, and and you know that that's probably the the only predictor that we have. And and one of the interesting findings, uh, you know, which uh, which again might sound counterintuitive, but is probably uh, true. Uh, is that suicides are higher in the high-income states. So like Kerala, for example, Tamil Nadu has much higher suicides. And women's suicides are quite high in those states. Now, you would think that these are states where there is much higher level of uh, education, a much higher level of economic development. It should be much lower. But, you know, the counterintuitive thing might be that if you're a woman in those states, uh, you know, things like patriarchy and domestic violence actually create even more cognitive dissonance for you. Because, you know, on one hand, you're going out and maybe working, you're earning, a, you, you, you have some economic freedom because you're earning. But then when you come back home, then you're facing the same kind of issues that women would face in any other part of the country. And that actually creates even more problems, uh, I would imagine, than say it does for a rural woman in uh, in Bihar, for example, because there is less cognitive dissonance, if you if I can kind of put it that way, you know, that, that their, their uh, uh, external lives and their lives within their homes are very similar in that sense. Uh, so, so those are some of the reasons, but I think it illustrates one of the biggest uh, problems with suicide in our countries is that we don't collect good quality data. Uh, we don't have any research on it. Uh, we don't even know, you know, all these numbers of women dying by suicide are higher and all. Uh, there is so much problems with those numbers. We don't even know if those numbers are accurate, if those numbers are, uh, are reflecting uh, the real numbers, or is it something that is an underestimate? There's enough evidence to say, say that suicide numbers published by the NCRB are a gross underestimate. Now, is it only women's suicides being underestimated or is it men's suicides being underestimated? You see, all of that would make a huge difference to all, all the numbers and everything that we have at the moment. Uh, so so it, is, it, I, it should worry us. And, and the, 
the other reason why suicides have become the number one cause in many ways is not because because the suicide rates for women might have gone up what has happened is that the death rates for women uh, by other causes of death have gone down right. you know so maternal mortality has gone down and so suddenly suicides haven't gone down and so they've become the number one cause i, I don't know if you saw this recent uh, report it just came out a week ago and i was reading it uh, the other day uh, they, they you know this is a, a confidential uh, uh, in report on maternal deaths in kerala that they do every year and they just publish the report for that and what is very interesting is that out of the 123 maternal deaths in kerala in a 12 month period so sorry uh, 133 maternal deaths and 23 were by suicide so close to 17% of maternal mortality is by suicide and so for the first time even they have started saying listen suicide is a major cause of death in in the maternal for maternal mortality so you know it, it's it's beginning to catch uh, attention in across sectors even the rch sector that's the reproductive and child health uh, sector are probably now saying look we need to do something about suicides especially maternal suicides so you know what you've said about mitigation efforts what are the kind of mitigation efforts that we really need to be looking at at policy level uh, you know that could have saved someone like amala jadav who you speak about in your story and uh, a gradient woman from a farmer's family uh, who attempts uh, who you know who drinks pesticide uh, uh you know so i just wanted to understand what are the kind of mitigation efforts that we need to target at these to sort of uh, reduce the numbers that we have facing us right now well there there's different kinds of mitigations that you can do okay so so for example some mitigation might be just uh immediate reduction of access reduction of access to uh to to lethal means so like if you reduced access to pesticides for example you might get less suicide deaths it won't mean that less women are attempting suicide uh but they might end up attempting suicide with a less lethal means and so you get less deaths now that that could be something we could do quite immediately but if there's two things that uh, really we need to be doing and which will make a difference to women's suicides i suspect is is addressing domestic violence and and uh, the counterpart of it is addressing alcohol in men because they both are linked you know the uh, alcohol use uh, among men uh is linked with domestic violence and we also know that alcohol use in men uh is associated with suicides in men so so if we wanted to really address these issues then these are the two big uh big things that we need to address which means having uh, in place programs which will address alcohol consumption programs which address domestic violence uh and i mean i'm sure abhijit can talk a lot more about how how does one address alcohol related issues but i think uh, uh, you know those are the two big things that we need to tackle in the in the short run immediate run reducing access to lethal means is probably our quickest and fastest way to try and reduce suicide deaths uh not necessarily people attempting suicide right and you know you just spoke about it and dr natkarni also writes about it in his chapter on alcohol and suicide uh, you know you do talk about alcoholism in the um uh, in the sphere of economic and social consequences of alcoholism but we very rarely talk about alcoholism in the context of suicide and uh, dr natkarni you address that in your chapter and you also talk about alcohol abuse in a very specific indian context so if you could just expand a little bit uh, 
you know, about it. And also, you know, you've written that likelihood of suicide attempt is seven times higher when someone is, uh, someone has consumed alcohol. So if you could just sort of expand on this aspect of uh, alcoholism and suicide. Uh, sure. I mean, um, uh, just like uh, the, the the relationship between uh, intimate partner violence and suicide and a lot of other things that we talk about in our book, this relationship between alcohol um, and suicide, um, although we have tried to kind of simplify it in, in the book, is, is pretty complex because alcohol works through various mechanisms uh, um, in leading up to the eventual death by suicide, either directly or indirectly. So, so for example, a, a direct mechanism that it could work through is, is when someone is intoxicated uh, with alcohol and um, they uh, die by suicide, but sometimes it's an impulsive act, something that you might not have done if you are not acutely intoxicated. I mean, there's this kind of, uh, there are issues that are underlying it in terms of, let's say, you feeling stressed or, or, or various other things that might be going on, uh, but you would not have done uh, or kind of um, died by suicide with whatever, through whatever act uh, if you are not intoxicated. So that's like the most, uh, proximal relationship that you might have with alcohol and, and dying by suicide. But then are, there are more um, uh, upstream social determinants. So kind of alcohol can work through violence. And so, so the, the man is drinking, it leads to intimate partner violence, and then the woman dies by suicide. So kind of more upstream factors. Um, uh, then there are other socioeconomic kind of factors which can lead up to uh, dying by suicide. You know, you kind of, uh, the man in the family drinking alcohol, um, money that has to be used for more uh, necessary uh, goods within the houses uh, is, is, are uh, diverted towards alcohol consumption. And then that's kind of enhancing the effects of poverty uh, that can then uh, go on to uh, be, lead on to people dying by suicide. So these are complex mechanisms. And, 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 and again, um, as you kind of mentioned, and as I say in the book as well, um, these patterns of drinking in, in India are um, pretty different from, from many other parts of, uh, especially from the developed world. So we, we are not talking about, uh, uh, you know, drinking for pleasure. We are not uh, talking about drinking uh, um, non-spirits or beer or wine. We are not talking about a, a culture where um, alcohol consumption is, 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 is a norm. And, and, and hence there are social norms which govern what you drink, how much you drink, where you drink, which then ensures that there is a control, uh, a social control around the drinking, and which reduces the problems that can develop uh, from 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 alcohol, uh, which which is not the case in India. So the the pattern is basically around heavy drinking within short periods of time. The whole idea is to drink spirits. Uh, the whole idea is to get drunk, uh, and 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 then the 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 things that that. Uh, kind of then lead on on from that one of which could be suicide as i said this connection between intoxication and and and, and dying by suicide the connection between being intoxicated and violence so so they're complex mechanisms some very proximal to dying by suicide but a lot of them are, are pretty distal working through various different mechanisms like violence and 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 and, and we need to understand these uh, a lot more uh, which also means that any solutions that we put in place are, are, should, shouldn't be kind of focused on uh, treating the person who drinks, but kind of working at various levels, right from policy to the individual level to reduce some of these impacts.
Uh, Dr. Rakhani, when it comes to mitigation, you talk about inverse association between alcohol taxation and uh, suicide mortality rate. Uh, now, how do you see the other extreme, for example, in a state like Bihar, where you ban alcohol completely, or, for example, in a state like Delhi, where you privatize alcohol and then alcohol shops are available um, by, uh, through privatization at a larger scale, and there's more advertising as well. So how do you see all of that in context of uh, what you've been talking about, which is mitigation? So, so I th to, to put it in a nutshell, the biggest problem in, in, in India with regards to alcohol control is, is that there's no consolidated policy on, on, on alcohol control, right? So every state uh, does its own thing. And the, 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 the second but bigger problem is that none of these things that are done are, uh, are kind of supported by any kind of evidence base. You know, they are, they are uh, informed by other considerations, like how much revenue can we generate from this is, is one of the examples. And then there's the other extreme, which is um, um, how do we uh, get votes? You know, I mean, so, so some of these decisions about prohibition are, are around uh, catering to uh, the, the, the requirements or, or the women's constituency, you know, so, so these are, they are kind of uh, there's this women's movement, which kind of, in many cases, pushes this uh, agenda and hence you kind of have a knee jerk reaction and say, let's ban alcohol all over the state. And it does not work. I mean, there is evidence from, from uh, various parts of the world and there's evidence from India itself where we have had uh, prohibition in some states uh, and which has then been reversed where we know that it, it doesn't work. Uh, even if you look at the numbers, I mean, like there's Gujarat is having prohibition for uh, so many years now, and and if you look at uh, the numbers on 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 uh, the the surveys around prevalence of alcohol consumption, uh, surprisingly, you will see that there is alcohol consumption in, in in Gujarat. Like, why would a state which is kind of has state sponsored prohibition have people drinking, and how does that happen? The reality of the matter is prohibition does not work. I mean, all of these states are uh, landlocked. You're, you're, you're surrounded by states where you can get alcohol from. Uh, there's kind of a poor um, uh, kind of implementation of any procedures that need to be put in place to uh, and, and ensure that there's prohibition. So none of those things happen. And, 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 and there is so much of variation in, in what uh, states do that uh, they effectively uh, um, kind of, uh, it's, it's effectively not having any kind of, of policy in place to uh, control your alcohol. Uh, taxation is the biggest example, right? I mean, there's just so much variation in terms of, 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 of taxation. And then the bigger point is there's this huge conflict of interest uh, with regards to the state. Um, uh, the, the state on the one hand has a responsibility to manage the, or help people with regards to their health. And on the other hand, they are also generating huge revenues from the alcohol industry. So that's a major conflict of interest. How do you kind of balance that? And that's something that we need to be thinking about. Right. Uh, you know, this is uh, something that's also another. Actually, if I can go... come in, if I can come in yeah. on this, which uh, this whole point about how what what Abhijit said about policy on alcohol, uh, I, I think it's it's demonstrative of. Uh, what is happening in India in the health sector generally, which is that a lot of our health-related policies uh, uh, have two major flaws. One is that they are not necessarily driven by evidence. So we don't necessarily do things which are driven by evidence. And even the COVID pandemic showed that very well. Uh, and, and secondly, that our health policies refuse to acknowledge the intersectoral nature of health-related issues, you know. 
that you can't solve every problem in health purely by looking at it from the health sector alone. And very often the health sector is the uh, uh, is carrying the can, so as to speak, for all the things that are happening in the other sectors. Uh, so in many ways, actually, our book, uh, one of the reasons for writing this book was also that uh, to try and bring a more uh, evidence-based uh, intersectoral perspective towards, uh, say, suicide policy and maybe over a period of time to other health policies too. Because it's it's the big lacking thing. As Abhijit said, a lot of policies are knee-jerk. Uh, they're not necessarily uh, going to give the results that we are looking for. And sometimes, actually, uh, they have... Uh, pernicious outcomes, you know, so sometimes you might actually find that something you're doing to reduce something might actually increase it. Uh, so we need to be very careful when we are doing these things. Yeah, and, uh, and as you said, policy often kicks in at the last minute, right? So for example, if your farmer suicides, policy kicks in by giving the family excretia or uh, offering them support at that stage, as opposed to sort of addressing the gradient crisis itself, which has led to the suicide. So this is something that uh, Amrita's interview with uh, P. Sainath uh, gets into. I wanted to ask uh, both uh, Dr. Batare and Dr. Nadkarni. Uh, Dr. Batare, I've uh, heard you speak about it earlier, about direct cash transfers in countries like Brazil that have actually helped mitigate uh, suicide numbers in, in a country uh, there. And is, if something like that is possible, why are we not doing enough of it? And so if both you both of you could sort of talk about it. Yeah. Abhijit, do you want to speak first or? No, please go ahead. Please go. Yeah. Uh, why are, I mean, the, the point, why are we not doing it? Now that's a, that's a far more complex socio-political issue, I suspect. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the entire debate around uh, cash transfers has been driven by a more uh, morality and efficiency driven approach. You know what I mean by morality is like, you know, is it moral to just be handing out money to people uh, and the efficiency driven approach, which is that, oh, if people had if people got enough money, why will they even work? So you just create a uh, culture of laziness around and people just getting money handed out to them. Uh, and, and that is that has been largely the the conversation around it, uh, and and our our entire uh, uh, conversation on the benefits thing has always been focused purely on trying to manage operational efficiency. You know, how do you prevent leakage? How do you ensure people get it? It's not driven by why are we doing this and what are we hoping to achieve it with it, and are we reaching those goals? You know, so like if let's say if if you had conditional cash transfers. Uh, then you should be very clear what your goals are and then monitor whether those goals are being met or not. And if they are not being met, how are you going to tweak it? Now, that does not happen in our, uh, in our, uh, in our political space or in our social space. You know, people are either for or against benefits uh, purely from either an economic perspective or a moral perspective. Uh, whereas I would, I would argue that we should be a little bit more dispassionate about it. Uh, and say, okay, uh, do we have health benefits of uh, cash transfers? Do we have educational benefits of cash transfers? And if you're getting those benefits at a societal level, then we should actually do a cost-benefit analysis of it and say, is this a better way to do it? And leave the morality aside completely from, from it. 
um, you know, because I the the whole economic argument also is that oh, do we have the money? Well, the fact is we do have the money. I mean, the money is not money has not really been the issue. The issue has been uh, whether we've actually believed in it and whether we are doing it or not doing it. So, so you know, I I, I think why it is not happening? That's why it's not happening. I, and and if you look at the examples of cash transfers, everyone says oh, this is happening in rich countries. It's not happening in rich countries. You know, you got uh, Brazil has a has a program uh, which is now running for close to 20 years and about half of the population is covered with it. Uh, and Brazil is uh, is in its economic development very similar to us. It's no different from us. So, you know, they're able to afford it. Uh, Indonesia is another country which is very similar to us. Uh, and they are able to do cash transfers. Uh, Kenya has started doing some cash transfers. So, you know, it, it is happening. It's not that it's not happening. And the evidence also shows that people don't become lazy because they get cash transfers. Uh, people don't blow it off on alcohol. That is the best uh, evidence that you get from a lot of studies, that people who get cash transfers don't just go and use the money to drink. Uh, it doesn't happen. So, you know, there are a lot of uh, lot of uh, positives to it. And I unfortunately, we've really not had this public debate as to what are the potential health and other social benefits of cash transfers. Right. Uh, Dr. Nathani, you want to add on? Yeah, I just wanted to add on to that. So, so first, first thing is, it's not just about conditional cash transfers. Okay, There's evidence to show even unconditional cash transfers are fine. So it's, it's not just about if you do this, you get this money. It's, it's it's just kind of giving money to people who need it does help. But I think the beauty of of, of either conditional or unconditional transfers is is that you can um, you, you know kill the proverbial several birds with one stone. It's it's not just uh, something that will uh, impact on one aspect of people's lives. There's evidence to show that it improves health. There's evidence to show that it, it uh, improves uh, nutrition. There is um, better education. So all of these things get impacted. And, and as we know, all of these things are interrelated. And so there is there is a, a direct effect on, on these outcomes, but there is also, in, in a sense, a domino or a knock-on effect on, on each other. And then hence, uh, it's, 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 it's a kind of an intervention where you do one single thing and it, you have multiple positive outcomes. And I think that's something that we need to be thinking about. And, and, and this also kind of speaks of what I was talking about earlier and Somit also spoke about is, is one of the reasons why this is not being done is, is because a policy is not informed by evidence. I mean, no one is looking at the evidence and saying, listen, there's this solid base of evidence which shows that conditional or unconditional cash transfers lead to better outcomes on several domains, and we should be doing it. It's a great idea, and we should do it. It's, 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 that's kind of kept away, and we have all of these unnecessary conversations around will giving people make them people money, make them lazy, et cetera, and, with, and, and there's no evidence for that. So we have conversations around non-evidence-based stuff and, and not talk about the evidence. I think that needs to change. Right. You know, I uh, this is, again, as you said, the theme through the book, which is about, uh, you know, creating a social economic uh, background for people to not take the extreme step, right? To create an environment where they can sort of, uh, you know, have a chance to uh, and a hope towards a better future for themselves, for the entire as uh, as well. Amrita, I want to talk about the chapter Too Young to Die. And you talk about India's demographic dividend that may be killing itself, you know, and we have a very, very young population. We also have a very high number of suicides amongst this young, uh, this young population. And this was something that we also saw during the pandemic year where uh, the number of uh, people under 18 uh, who died was uh, saw a huge spike. 
I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, that. At the same time, I think uh, death, uh, deaths due to suicide, uh, due to exam-related stress went down. So what are the learnings that one can have from this pandemic year, which has thrown on figures which are very different from what were uh, visible and being spoken about earlier? I think one thing, Vishali, we learn, uh, and, and you know that uh, doctors to um, you know weigh in on this as well is when you're looking at what has worked, right? I mean, one thing is to f- the, the framing of the problem, um, and when we talk about exam-related stress or we talk about student suicides, I think as we're reporting, it's very easy to make it about one thing, and of course, there is a peak given that uh, that insane amount of stress. Um, we had some interviews. I think it was with Doctor, uh, yeah, Doctor Lakshmi Vijayakumar talking about Tamil Nadu, for example, introducing a supplemental exam system that brought down that onerous pressure from from exams. And that's again, uh, you know, one of the themes to the book is to see what are things that have worked to bring down uh, bring down the numbers. Um, I think we also have to look at the framing because I think, as you'll see in almost every chapter or wherever there's a story or a a commentary on the suicides that have taken place, that it is a multiplicity of causes, right? And from what uh, Dr. Nathkadi and Dr. Pathari have been talking about, it's not just one thing that is causing um, somebody to take that extreme step. So when you talk to the folks who are manning some of these crisis helplines, um, and uh, they're all volunteers, I learned during the course of this book, which I did not know. Uh, but you know, people are calling in at a time of high stress, it is ostensibly exams that are stressing them out, but they want to talk about relationships, or they want to talk about families that are breaking up, or they want to talk about something else. So I think when we look at uh, the data, and again, the data not being what it should be, um, we need to do it very clearly. And even in the media, not report it as a farmer suicide means you're understanding, um, you know, that that your understanding that gets limited to that one headline, doesn't it? Student suicides. And then we talk about quota and Rajasthan. And we have these um, uh, shorthand mechanisms of reporting, which I think we need to examine. I think Sainath says it in his chapter that the um, the recorded cause of death, there's an issue with that. And I think when you look at students, there's an issue with understanding that it is a cauldron of pressure, but they're coming in with very, very many different, um, very, many different concerns. So again, coming back to the theme, I think we've uh, we've been hearing from the doctors as well is, look at what's working, look at the evidence, um, and just you know, tying it back to what Dr. Patari was saying about pesticides, we did uh, include Sri Lanka as an example of, you know, they had amongst the highest suicide rates uh, in the 80s, they managed to ban a, a majority of these very toxic pesticides, and 20 years later, their numbers are, uh, you know, they've, they've just shown a huge decrease in suicide attempts. So I think just looking at each of these individual categories, understanding it's a multiplicity of reasons, um, and looking at uh, examples of what's actually worked would be the need of the hour. Yeah, just carrying on from where Amrita left, I think one of the things, let's take the, the issue of exam-related suicides. You know, Amrita touched on that. Uh, look at the data. What, you know, every year what you will see is that at the time of June and July when the board results are announced, uh, you'll hear, you'll see newspaper articles about it and then you'll have all the state governments announcing uh, helplines for that two-month period when helplines are available and all. Uh, we actually don't have any data whether those helplines make any difference or not, okay? Uh, so so we don't really know whether they're useful. Uh, but, but you know, this, this is all based on this idea that somehow suicides are related to one factor or one cause, uh, whereas we know that it isn't. It's usually a, it's a process. There are multiple stops on the way, and, and then you have the final suicide thing. So, uh, so look at the, just look at the NCRB data, for example. Uh, only about 10% of the suicides among the under-18s, which is where the board exams come in, 
uh, are because of what are classed as exam related suicides okay whereas 35% of the suicides are classed as family problems so one third of the suicides under those who are under 18 are because of family problems now again why you know if somebody uh, somebody uh, how does how do they decide that this was an exam suicide and this was not a family suicide again we don't know that so there's problems with the data uh, but, but but the point i'm trying to make is that that while while uh, you could reduce exam related suicides and in in during the covid year it is very interesting statistic uh suicides among the under 18s have gone up by 18% in 2020 uh but in the same group exam related suicides went down by 24% okay which which is amazing when that's largely i think because you had online exams and everyone was passing the exams and so exam related suicides are down but even if those suicides were down by 24% uh total number of suicides are up by 18% so clearly just addressing the exam related suicides is not going to solve the problem uh and and this is exactly what i meant that we we just pick up one thing and then run with it uh, without actually uh saying hang on a second why are we getting these suicides and what are we doing about all the 11000 kids who die by suicide each year uh but we are only focusing on the 1500 exam suicides in a year uh so you know it's all of that kind of stuff which really needs to be uh, addressed much more um in a much more systematic way rather than the way it is being done just Yeah, you know, tick in the box, uh, as they say, and I think media is also guilty of it. I know that I'm asked by my editors to do more stories around suicides when the board result exams come out, uh, and 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 a uh, and a story just before the board exams happen on how to mitigate their mental health issues. But you know that's not the time to do it. The story has to be done throughout, and this is something that Amrita you refer to in your uh, in your article on media reporting. Uh, the two things that you talk about when it comes to suicide often the reporting is done by the crime reporter not necessarily by the health reporter and that was uh, that is linked to earlier suicide being seen as a crime classified as a crime and consequently what's happened is the reporting on suicide has always been extremely sensational and despite the awareness despite the kind of conversations we've had over the last 10 years even amongst the big media uh, about wanting to address this problem when it comes to a celebrity suicide or a sensational suicide it we, we revert back to the same 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 issues that we were fighting against through the uh, you know through the last 10 years and uh, we could just talk to uh, us about you know as someone who's been a reporter earlier how do you really address it do the editors have the um, time and the inclination to sort of take this up yeah i think that's a really good uh, uh, point rashali and one of the reasons we wanted to address the media as a key stakeholder um, was because you know the the framing the reporting has such an outsized impact right on what people see uh, it's so relevant in terms of how i as a layperson would make up my mind about uh, some of these issues so there are two or three things there one is it's not to knock the media i think editors do care i and i you know in the acknowledgments i do say none of the journalists i've met in my life and you know you and i have met quite a fair few um all of them care about well researched stories they care about uh you know the human uh, the human aspect of a story right it's not that we um, uh, i don't i do completely believe in my heart that journalists want to tell the story the right way 
I think there have been a few cuts uh, over the years where you have more generalist reporters, um, when you have people kind of just, um, uh, like we've said, and, and Tanmoy pointed this out, Dr. Patari has been talking about this, uh, like you said, that uh, it's it's usually the crime beat, the police are calling and saying cause of death is suicide, and that's the reporter that takes up the story, which, which, which turns everything on its head. Um, there are a few things that editors and journalists can do which are very simple. You know, for example, you do not need to get into how somebody died by suicide. You do not need to get in the means of suicide. I think the speculation, which gets very gory, and I know it's very voyeuristic, because when you look at celebrity suicides, uh, was there a note? What did they say? Were there problems? What is that one cause? There's never one cause, as we've learned. Um, secondly, it doesn't help anyone, right? When you when you think about, as a reporter, the potential damage your story could be doing versus uh, what is the story actually uh, that you're trying to tell, I think that would be a very clarifying point for both editors and journalists. But it needs it needs education. So especially we've seen that there are less and less, I mean, you're a small tribe of health editors at this point in the country, right? There are less and less um, specialized beat uh, reporters. Um, and again, like we said, uh, suicide being multifactorial, uh, it's not necessarily just a mental health issue. Um, but if I come back from all of the, um, the, the sort of interviews and stuff that we've done, if we just come back to the basics of journalism and we look at centering the story around what's happened, remembering that it's a family, it's a person, um, it's a devastating thing that has happened um, and take a step back from that. I think it will uh, it will definitely impact the reporting and make things um, much, much better. The the stats that we've cited, and again, we won't get into this just for the duration of the, the, the interview you're doing today, but the stats we've cited on the impact, I mean, the increase in um, suicide attempts after a celebrity suicide and given the kind of media frenzy we saw, for example, after the Sushant Singh Rajput death, um, that is pretty shocking in itself. So I think educating the media, letting you know, letting journalists and editors know more about um, the impact of what they're doing. And the other simple thing is just to uh, put put the person back at the heart of the story. You know, I think that would make a huge difference. Right. Uh, thank you so much, Amrita and uh, Dr. Pathare and Dr. Natkarni. I know I said 20 minutes and I went uh, over by 20 minutes. So <laughs> apologies for that. But really important conversations were had. And uh, you know, you can speak, of course, a lot more about this topic, but, uh, you know, we will talk, we're going to end it here. And uh, I hope uh, this uh, book of yours gets a lot of us to think and, uh, you know, place suicide in context and not just sort of uh, talk about it in the context of mental illness. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Vaishali. Thank you so much. Thank you.